0: Digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ Two.
1: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ Two the Deuce. What up? All right, and. Sitting by my side, looking into his gorgeous face, is Mr. Will the
2: Thrill. Greetings and salutations.
1: All right, guys, you might notice something a little bit different about our intro today. Uh, Our gents did not pop their bottles like they usually do. And the reason for that is we're actually putting a parental warning and a trigger warning on the front of this podcast uh, before we even get started because it does deal with a lot of really adult themes. It deals with self-harm, alcoholism, uh, being uh, institutionalized, AA, uh, pills, drugs, cocaine, all of it, that, you know, all of sin is covered in this trigger warning. So uh, if you feel uncomfortable and you wanna just wait till next week to catch up with the rest of Dusty, we completely understand, but this is definitely a, we're slapping that. Listener discretion is advised on the front of this episode.
3: And um, clowns.
1: Yeah. Well, roller skates, but yeah. So. Okay, um, I was close. I was close. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the only thing that we really have to cover this week in entertainment is that the director of famous, like incredible films, like Superman and The Omen, The Omen, and Lethal Weapon. Richard Donner passed away, uh, I believe at the age of 91. That one got me. That one got me. Ooh, he
2: direct, yeah. directed my favorite Christmas movie. Yeah, Scrooge. Yep. Yeah. What a
3: body of work that guy had. Wow. I just I, I didn't realize how many of the uh, great movies he was attached to and then I, you know, I saw where he passed the, the other day and just kind of reading his obituary and you just start reading the movies and you're just like, "Holy crap." And he worked well, on he, he guy. did
1: The Twilight, he did the episode uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet.
3: Oh god. So probably he one actually, of the reasons. Probably one of the reasons to this day that I don't like to fly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Donner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but man, 20, but 000. like the. Oh man, the first lethal weapon. God, what a great movie that was.
1: I still haven't seen it, and. Oh <gasps>
3: crap! What a great movie.
1: But Will Will, you're
3: going I'm movie. gonna need you. To, I'm gonna need you to take care of
1: that. I'm on it. I mean, I, I've told him time and time again, I'd be willing to watch it. It's a good movie, but we just never have gotten around to it. Um, I will say, you know, sorry about last week, guys. Um, As you guys know, both, like all three of us have pretty hectic jobs and it just got down to the wire and we could not get it edited in time. So, you know, I'm sorry that it came out late, but things do happen and they will probably continue happening, but we assure you that they will happen with less (laughs) regularity. So that was on me. I take the full blame of throwing myself in front of the bus. So how about we move on to Dusty? Yes. Now, this isn't actually going to take us very far into Dusty's life. And the reason for that is even though it wasn't as, what is the word, uh, exciting on the music front, her personal life took a turn. And so we're really going to vote. Yes, Ruka. Ruka has a <laughs> lot of, our cat has a lot of things to say where- about Dusty.
3: The uh, the interesting thing is, is from from what you mentioned, and just from the little bit I do know about her, which which coming into the series wasn't a ton. We we are, I, I mean, we're only we've only made it up to what the late sixties or very early seventies to the first two parts, and we're pretty much past her musical prime and heyday. Yeah, yeah. In terms of, I mean, she continued to make music and and make great music, but I mean, in terms of producing big hit records, I mean, she's pretty much had her day already.
2: Yeah, we're coming in the, the twilight of her career, as it were.
3: Yeah, which doesn't seem like a thing that should be, but because for some reason you're like, oh, no, no, she was popular for a long time, and then you actually start looking at it, you're like, no, that, that window actually wasn't open for that long, really. I mean, she just, I think about the time we um, finished part two, um, I think we had, she just put out, what, Dusty in Memphis? And yeah, that's, that, yes. was, that And that's, it's, I mean, in terms of career success, it's kind of downhill from here.
1: It really is. She will have a small resurgence.
3: Okay. But,
1: but the fact is, in 1969, Dusty was actually more successful than she could have ever imagined. Uh, she was touring northern clubs in silver dresses was being paid $1,000 a night to full house signs. She was claimed to be a singer's singer. And music critics were satisfied that all the things that Dusty's voice was capable of had been born out on that Memphis album. And remember, that album was not a critical, well, it wasn't a, uh, not critical, what's the other? Commercial. Commercial. Mm. It wasn't a commercial darling. Critics loved it, and it slowly found its audience, and now it's hailed as one of the greatest albums of all time. But back in London, she started to have relationship trouble. She and Norma would often snap at each other at like odd times, but Norma would try to shrug off things and laugh and that infuriated Dusty. So when Dusty found out that she was having an affair during her absence, when she was recording in America, she was furious. It also didn't help that Dusty seemed to have odd one night stands for herself. So, a bit of a double I mean, standard. Yeah. No one's, no one's uh, you know, uh, free of sin <laughs> in this. Uh, she told the Evening Standard that she was, in fact, promiscuous. I don't hmm. leap into bed with someone new every night, but I can be unfaithful. It's fun. And while it's happening, it's fun, but it's not fun afterwards because I'm filled with self recrimination. And it should be no surprise that occasionally, because of these jealous feelings, that, uh, you know, ashtrays or Christmas ornaments would start flying. Who's shocked? Huh. Billie Jean King would often try to step in between Norma and Dusty. And that was just the kind of person I was, she said. I thought I could help. So I could try to make things okay, rescue people. And now I know better.
3: And she could probably repel the ashtrays with her tennis racket. I That's mean,
1: good thinking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that autumn, Dusty went to Sigma Sound, which was the Philadelphia studio of Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. She was going to record her second album for Atlantic. So remember, she's she at the end, she ends up burning through a ton of A, management, and B, record labels. So she has moved on, and now she's doing her second album for Atlantic. Single, Signal was the only building that had a four-track system, and it would be another two years, along with producer Tom Bell, the songwriters of Gamble & Huff, would produce a sound that would become the basis that was identifiable as the Philly sound i
3: mean dusty was really influenced by and really absorbed you know american black music i mean that was a huge influence
1: yeah absolutely and i
3: think and in part one did you not say like early on like some people upon just hearing her uh, just assumed that she was black
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and and of course like today we can google somebody and figure out what they look like but it's the same thing that happened with rick astley like, people thought he was a black kid. They also right. thought he was a black 40-year-old man. Right, <laughs> right.
3: I was going to say, they didn't think he was a kid. They thought he was, like, 70. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, the general consensus of the album, which was titled A Brand New Me, was released in Britain as From Dusty with Love. Did only moderately well, and although the title single got onto the British charts and the American charts, it, it didn't matter she was improving as a singer and she was still receiving praise from other musicians, but it was really the lack of chart success from her albums that was affecting Dusty the most. She was, she was bordering on depression due to the chart success because she needed that almost as validation.
3: Which is tough because you're, you're you're counting on the whims of uh, public taste to keep you happy. Then that's a recipe for not being happy.
1: And it's really funny that you mentioned that because the album had two different titles. So it had, in America, it was a brand new me. And in Britain, it was from Dusty with Love. And the reason for that is people didn't want a new Dusty in Britain. They wanted the old Dusty. They didn't want anything new or to change. They wanted the same old Dusty. They wanted Son of a Preacher Man. They wanted, only want to be with you. You don't have to say you love me. That's what they wanted. So that's what they put it out as, from Dusty with Love. So you you didn't, just from the title, think it was going to be something new and earth-shattering and something to be feared.
2: And also you you're
1: experiencing a genre
2: shift. I mean, you're getting out of that 1960s into the 70s, which is gonna be more, I mean, disco. Oh, and disco more, is yeah. about to and then you have, you know, also a change in rock. You're moving out of that kind of carryover from the Beatles and all that, and you're getting more into kind of the, the stoner rock. I mean Yeah, more psychedelic. Yeah. You're, yeah.
3: <laughs> you're getting in you say, yeah, you're getting into psychedelic stuff. You're getting into some really heavy music in in her native country, especially.
4: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and she's already experimenting with that because remember um, we had Hendrix. and yeah. we're, but we're
3: we're we're not we're a stone's throw from prog rock at this point. So <laughs> yeah, we got a few years, but it's coming up. Not 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 too long before like Emerson Lake and Palmer are playing thirty minute you know yeah. synthesizer solos. And yes, and yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm.
1: So the strange thing about Dusty is that she seems like she's really shy and aloof anytime she's in front of cameras, anytime she's doing interviews, anything like that. But she would sometimes sit with fans for hours after the shows, just talking to them, signing autographs, chatting with people. That was what she needed. She needed the approval of the audience. So if they didn't love her, who the hell would? That was her take on it. You know, her relationship with Norma seemingly falling apart. You know, her, her relationship with her parents wasn't that great. Uh, you know, Tim's not really in the picture. So I don't think that he's done anything, you know, uh, to slight her. But he, she just doesn't talk about him a lot. Mm. Just a little timeline check. On April 30th, 1969, she undertook an 11-day concert tour in the U.S. and Canada, accompanied by King Curtis. And that actually started at Nevada University, which seems to be a very strange place to start a concert tour. It's interesting
2: you mention that because the university circuit in the 70s was actually a big thing. And we're going to get into this, I think, with some of our other artists.
3: So she went She went to like the University of Nevada, and that's where she opened her
1: door? Yeah. Oh, yep. wow. Okay. She also had a cabaret season in New York's Americana, which was postponed in the June of 1969. And again, we find out again and again and again, things are being canceled from time to time. But it's really weird because I, I didn't f- read anything that seemed like, at this point, Dusty canceling. Would cause her image to be shattered. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's she's not considered unreliable, mm. even though these things get canceled. So I don't I can't find references to why certain things are canceled. I'm guessing sometimes you know money falls through or uh, you know she's got health issues. But some of these things it's it's a pattern with her that things get canceled. In November of 1969, Dusty left her home to record an hour-long German TV special titled dusty springfield dusty had to lip sync to a performance of son of the preacher man oh i think it's gonna rain today ain't no sunshine since you've been gone windmills of my mind and she also lip synced to a performance of i close my eyes and count to 10 at the end of 1969 the argument at dusty's homes were getting much worse now, one day in early new years tom pushed a note under the door for norma it said since you two are always fighting all the time wouldn't you think it'd be better if you went back to america which i think Wow. that's ballsy yeah <laughs> this was tom really stepping out of bounds but norma was so upset that she actually decided that it would be better if she and dusty did have a break after nearly four years of being together so norma packed her bags and went back to los angeles she left in the middle of 1970 and left dusty alone on january 11th a brand new me was released in the u.s and tj you'll like this okay On January 22nd, 1970, Dusty records the Johnny Cash Show at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville. Sweet! I'm going to play that performance on the show. So here is Dusty on the Johnny Cash Show.
0: A few years ago, a fine music group had a whole bunch of hits in a row. They were called the Springfields, which included Dusty and her brother Tom. Well, since then, Dusty has had a whole bunch of hits, and her brother Tom has written quite a few, too. So here are a few of Tom Springfield's songs, sung by his sister, Miss Dusty Springfield.
5: There's a new world somewhere they're from this land. And I'll leave you there someday if you It's a long, long journey,
4: so stay
5: by my side. When we walk through the storm, I'll be my guide. Be my guide if they gave me a fortune, my pleasure would be small. I could lose.
0: job beautiful they love you dusty you welcome back anytime that's the springfield
3: so that was um that was just like the two of the biggest badasses ever
1: no kidding the hair just the Uh, hair uh, on that page yeah if you guys could go look at that video just look at the hair there's so much of it (laughs) but yeah i mean like He is a a former subject that we did that we might be touching on again. We were Mm. actually talking during the music that we might go back and revisit Mr. Cash because when we started it, you know, we were having to pay a certain amount of money for a certain amount of time and that we actually couldn't exceed our time limits or they charge us tooth and nail for it. So, uh, you know, we might go back now that we don't really have that time constraint and um, delve a little bit deeper into Mr. Cash. Cheers to Pantheon, right? Yeah. Thank you, Pantheon all right so i mean what is the general consensus of that because those weren't her songs those were her brother's songs
3: you know again I, you she could sing almost anything yeah she could sing the with phone that book. with that voice I, I there's there's very few songs she could sing that wouldn't sound great that i can think of
1: yeah she could sing the phone book and
2: it would still sound good there's Pretty so- much. there's something about her voice and maybe you can connect this ld that reminds me of karen carpenter
1: it's a purity there's
2: pieces of it
1: yeah there's a purity in her voice there's an enunciation mm. you never question the lyrics of a karen carpenter song oh no you hear them loud and clear they're they're perfect and you know she she'd say preacher man mm. and it would be the same thing as close to you like they were very well enunciated and they put an emphasis on particular words that made them like clear and clean and i think that's what both Dusty and Karen have, and they both kind of were born out of the same sort of the same era. Mm-hmm. Karen was maybe like ten years later, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it they still had a very similar uh, upbringing. And remember, she started out. Karen started out as a drummer. Yes, she did. So
2: they have a girl drummer. And greatest they, joke in the Scott Pilgrim movie.
1: Yeah, they all have girl. Yeah, drums. every band is a female drummer. All right, so just just jumping forward a little bit. Uh, in 1970, she was flying regularly to Los Angeles, partly to see Norma, because they were still trying to work things out, and partly to talk to agents and managers and kind of, you know, dipping her toe in the American market. Her and her manager, Vic, you guys remember Vic Villings from the, the previous episodes. Dude who carries a gun. Uh, oh no, no, that's else. somebody else. Okay, sorry. That's somebody that Travis brought up. There's so many managers, <laughs> in, and some of them are packing heat. Yeah, no, you were talking about Led Zeppelin's manager. <laughs> that
2: was it, yeah. yeah. Six five dude with a
1: gun. Yeah. Uh, so they had actually parted ways. So her and Vic had parted ways two years previous. And they agreed that, you know, Dusty wanted to go to America because it was pretty obvious that if she did move to America, she would need an American to take care of business for her. And she also needed somebody who understood the kind of music she was creating and understanding what it would take to be big and tour and cut records in America so he didn't want to leave England and of course he didn't have a handle on the American market so he thought it would be best just to bow out so that's what he did and that ended a six-year professional relationship with Dusty when word got out that Dusty would be leaving for England her good friend Pat who we talked about before leaving for the United States me. yes so okay. when she was leaving for the United States she told Pat and Pat had told her that she she couldn't go. You know, that's the thing though, was Pat was so important to Dusty's life because she was the one that dealt with everything from the dresses to the shoes, to the piano, to the stage. She was there for Dusty. She was the one that was booking these things and helping Dusty out. She was a true friend to Dusty. And she had to tell Dusty that she couldn't go with her. Uh, she knew that Tony, and her, Tony, her husband, wouldn't be able to get a work permit, but also she was pretty pregnant. Hmm. So later, Pat would have a little bit of guilt because she felt that if she had gone with Dusty, maybe what happened to her in Los Angeles could have been averted. So that's a little bit of foreshadowing. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I could have stopped it, even if I hadn't been there all the time. All I know is that I was hearing things over the years and I couldn't believe it. Not my dust. I don't know what happened to her over there. And we're going to get into that. So this is a bit of foreshadowing because there's a book that I was reading by Paul Howells called The Complete Dusty Springfield, which is where I pull my timeline from. There's a whole year missing from her professional life. It goes from 74 to 76. She did nothing of note that year. And so we're, luckily I have the Dancing with Demons novel by her friend, Vicki Wickham, that actually fills in a little bit of that, but it's not a lot. So um now, on June 13th, 1970, Dusty had gone to Pat and Tony's wedding with Norma and Madeline. But that was one of those moments that would be a conundrum of sorts for Dusty because she would want to go be with her friends, but she was afraid to outshine the bride. So she went to a chain store and just bought an off the rack dress. But the only problem was that this little dress was like covered in tiny little flowers and it made Dusty look gorgeous. Mm. So when she gets to the wedding, both Pat and Pat's friends were upset seeing Dusty because Dusty wasn't as glamorous as she usually was. And so Pat thought it was really sweet that she was trying to dress down, but her friends were like, but she's not as glamorous as Dusty Springfield, man. Mm. Have you seen, like, she's not even wearing a massive wig or anything. Like, who is this? And like, Dusty could not win. Mm. She just couldn't. And she tried to, I mean, like Pat even said, like, she tried to not outshine me, but seriously, it's Dusty Springfield, and we have a certain amount of expectations, and <laughs> oh, man. So, tough um, act to follow. It, it was a tough <laughs> act to follow. In September, she was interviewed by Ray Connolly for the London Evening Standard. Basically, this was all a part of a promotion that she was doing for her version of the old Rascals hits, How Can I Be Sure. Do you guys know that song? I want to say I do.
4: Uh,
3: I don't know if I do.
1: How can I be sure in a world that's constantly changing? I'm not going to get anywhere saying it. And like all of her interviews, she wouldn't totally let in the interviewer. And so she would give these like jokes, half truths, like, you know, it's a non-interview. <laughs> the The column didn't mention her music at all. The interviewer described her as having a pretty lumpy little face and said that she's 30, but they said that she might be 30 but wasn't any less Do you That's guys are under-
2: backhanded yeah so basically <laughs> yeah. he said
1: her face was fat and lumpy and that she looked older than she said so he seems like a real nice guy yeah yeah he- hit parties dusty gave a quote that was later to make the interview notorious i couldn't stand to be thought of to be a big butch lady she said i know i'm perfectly capable of being swayed by a girl as a boy. So right there in that interview, she's admitting to being bisexual. Right, And it was pure dusty. It was always candid, never telling an outright lie, but never telling a complete truth either.
3: I would imagine that would have been quite shocking at the time.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Because you've talked
3: before about how this was something that in entertainment at this, at this point, great pains were taken to, to cover it that up Yeah, because of an idea that if somehow you would be less marketable or less, popular or audiences wouldn't accept you or, wh- or or whatever the mentality was then
2: and at the same time you hear about all these celebrities now who, at that time period who were you know fluid with their sexuality i feel like it, was, it i feel almost like a double standard because on the one hand tj what you're saying is correct culturally it may not have been as accepted at the same time i feel like it was prevalent
1: <laughs> yeah well i mean like you had at this point you had artists like elton john yeah
2: david bowie david bowie
1: oh yeah. well, i mean even then, like in the beginning, he wasn't, he, he was tra- blazing a fashion trail. So people might not have equated eccentricity with sexuality. Maybe. M- maybe, maybe not. I know later on it didn't matter, but then you had people like Freddie Mercury, mm. who outwardly was with Mary for how long? Long time. Yeah, all right. So now that she was permanently in the States, Her and Norma did try to live together again, but it wasn't working, and they both agreed that they probably shouldn't ever try it again. So that was the end of that. She tried. It failed. She moved on. So that was the first thing that might have repercussions. The second thing that happened was her last appearance at the Talk of the Town. In December 1972, after spending months in Los Angeles doing her season, uh, which is these familiar venues, those are some of her most successful appearances, and she really looked forward to them. Now, on the talk of the town, she was due for a performance, but by 11.30 on her opening night in 1972, Dusty was 40 minutes late going on stage, and Mike Gill was getting worried. Uh, Dusty was having a problem with her throat. It was so tense before she started the show, and even her usual care of port, which I think is wine, correct? Uh, Yes. Yeah. Port and Lemon failed to work. By the time a specialist had been called out, Dusty had to have her larynx shot up with cortisone. Oof. This is not a very tasty treatment. <laughs> and the doctor warned her that he couldn't do it a lot or she could lose her voice for good. And I think that's kind of what happens with athletes, right? Like they can get a shot in their knee or their elbow and it is like a short fix, but they actually need to rest and let that heal correct t you're more of the sports ball person
3: i I, I believe so yeah um cortisone in particular
1: yeah because it takes down swelling correct it
3: It, it takes down swelling and you know uh, a lot of times people you know pitchers get one in their shoulder running backs get it in their knee or whatever and they're they're good to go for a while
1: yeah but you need that rest and recuperation for your for for any part of your body or it's going to get worse
3: well then the thing you have to think about and people don't think of it in these terms, your vocal cords are muscles. Yeah. So right. you, you can overwork them just like you can anything else. You can strain them just like you could strain your bicep or your quad or anything like that. And it, it seemed at this time in particular, most singers did not really take very good care of their voices.
1: No. I like mean they did
3: they drank, they did drugs, they smoked, they they overused their, They they sang. A lot. I mean, they would do. They would do. Well, yeah, we do two shows a night, six nights a week, and or whatever. And I sleep like three hours and get up and do some coke and
4: yeah, <laughs> and yeah,
3: eat eat a plate of something, something fried that's terrible for your voice. And it's like that stuff. Like you can't do that and sing. You really can't. You have to almost treat vocal cords like like an athlete does a muscle.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And not to go too far off the topic, but someone like Celine Dion, I actually was watching a special on Celine Dion. Both of you shut up. I had a free day. Mm -hmm. Um, She doesn't, this might've changed, but at the time that I saw the special, she didn't actually speak the day before a concert and the day of the concert. So she has like a system of speaking to people that she needs anything from like her, her team. So she drinks like honey and lemon and water and that's it so she's one of those people that really takes care of her voice and i think that's lent itself to almost of what 30 40 year career at this point
2: i'm just imagining she must have been in vegas for a year not talking to anybody i mean think about that because you're on stage every night yeah yeah if you're in residence at those places hey ld hate to stop here but we do have to take a moment just to tend to our <laughs> sponsors so let's take a little break and we are back.
1: All right, let's jump back into Dusty. So it was after midnight when Dusty finally took the stage. And from her opening number, it was pretty clear to everybody that she was struggling. Now, in that audience that night were Elton John and Rod Stewart. So, <laughs> you know. Names you may know. Yeah. And they started to call out to her. And they're like, Dusty, you can do it. Go, girl. Yeah. Woo. Uh, Dusty seemed to relax. And despite the, the coughs and the apologies, she managed to finish with the audience on their feet, demanding an encore, even though they knew that she hadn't been at her finest. The next day, the talk of the town management were stunned to get a phone call saying that Dusty had been advised by her doctor to have three days of complete rest. Now, like, think about that. Three days. That's it. That is all. Just three days of letting her rest. That, for them, was unheard of. This was a sold-out season, and they did not take that well, and they fired her. Wow. An entire season of tickets now. And she, she's, you know, she's at talk of the town. She has this whole season and one bad night and they're asking the doctor saying she needs three days to rest. And instead they're like, screw that. And they fire her. Wow. Yeah. Not only would she lose all that money for what she was supposed to do, which was four weeks of work. She had put a dent in her reputation and that's honestly what hurt her more than losing the cash. It was her reputation, and it was her self-esteem as an artist. Mm. So even though the management and the spokesperson for the Talk of the Town was quoted as saying, we do not wish to comment except to say that we would love to book her sometime next year, Dusty's American management told The Sun, as far as we're concerned, she'll never play the Talk of the Town again. Ouch. And she never did. Good. We will talk about Talk of the Town later on in the episode because I do time jump a little bit in this. So, yeah. And the thing is, this is the first time that Dusty wasn't perfect. When we talked about her meeting Norma, Mm -hmm. Norma being an American artist, wasn't used to somebody standing on stage and working till they got it perfect. And she goes into the studio and tears these things down (laughs) syllable by syllable. She has to be perfect. And this was the first time that that facade was cracking. So the press latched onto that and suddenly they made it seem like she was extremely unreliable and really hard to work with and this was the first time that anybody in the music business in britain began to get a whiff that their golden girl might be letting them down although Jessie was beginning to realize her success her life was simultaneously unraveling she sought comfort by losing herself in the stories of doris day and billy holiday because she could identify with them She was still struggling with her sexual identity and using pills and alcohol in an effect to lessen her inhibitions, making it easier for her to experiment with lesbian relationships.
3: May I ask something or or make a point? Yeah. You know, in the interview, she said something about, you know, why I could be wooed by a woman just as well as a man or whatever. And she's taken uh you know, drugs to loosen her inhibitions to feel more comfortable in lesbian relationships. Has she ever been with a guy I, like that? Like we've we've had no indication that she's been that she's dated men.
1: Okay, it's, yeah. it I, at this point, no. I don't think she ever does, and I think at one point she does the I have a girlfriend in Canada story, which is I have a boyfriend named Harold or something like that. We do touch on that, but like, no, they have tried backwards and forwards to try to figure out if she's been with a man, and I don't think she ever was.
2: Well, you made a point in the first episode that said she almost had a fear of men yeah she's terrified which, of which seemed to last her entire life from what
4: yeah you can so
3: so is her was was her saying like oh well you know say claiming to be bad bi- was does that to soften that and then at that time in some way or she just couldn't know. bring herself to just just come out and say like look i like women <laughs> i'm not interested in men at all i mean I, I don't or maybe she was and didn't act on it or maybe she did nobody knows i just you we, you've You've researched this very well, and you haven't mentioned a guy yet. So,
1: Yeah. And the thing is, like, you could take that two different ways. It was either her stating, oh, I'm bisexual, or it was her stating, oh, I'm bisexual. You know, that was her, it was either her saying, no, 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 you get it wrong. Like, I can date a guy, I can date a girl, whatever, I don't care. Or she could be saying, I, you know, here's a, here's a little hint, guys, I date women, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that might be her way of, like, testing the waters of coming out. Right. But the thing is, the media picked up on this, you know, the intoxication, the lesbian relationships, and that only muddied the waters even more. Liquid courage only goes so far in deep seated personal struggles. Like, I'm not laughing at that. I am guffawing at that. That is not a way to go you know, and we're going to see that with Dusty. Dusty was in such agony that she began to display bizarre and eccentric behavior, not unlike what she had been seeing as a child, but it was actually more pronounced. She would reportedly order boxes of dishes to be delivered just so she could smash them against the wall. Wow. She also had been known to toilet papers, people's houses, throw furniture, throw food in restaurants, and often play mean and distasteful pranks on people. At one point, she went so far that she landed herself in New York's Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. We will get there. Oh, wow. She had, she had been diagnosed with a nervous breakdown. That, however, wasn't her only trip to Bellevue. She had become well-known for her unhinged behavior, and naturally, her reputation eventually would suffer for it.
2: Now, this also stems from her family life. If, again, going back to your earlier episodes where her mother exhibited... This type of behavior.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. It was a learned behavior that that I don't know if she was ever discouraged from. You know, it's it's it was something that she saw her mother do, and she incorporated a in life. And this is an escalation. We we didn't know if her mother, if Cat, was breaking dishes and like having that eccentricity of like finding like seeking out things to break. And, and what's fascinating is you know you find this
2: a lot, and I think we're gonna get to this in one of our future episodes. Where I'm trying to tip my hand here but you have these individuals who are sort of frozen in childhood and i i'm very much getting that vibe with dusty you know she's very much kind of locked into that that time period and almost never never got out of
1: it well the thing is also she's this is a duality in her personality she's such a perfectionist with her music like she has to be perfect, but her home life can be a disaster Mm. with the breaking of the plates and the throwing of the food and toilet papering people's houses. Like It's almost like the music was the one thing that she could control.
2: Right, and now she's losing control of even that.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's we'll get there. On the music front, she appeared on Tom Jones' show, and I'm going to play that show for you now. This is Tom Jones and Dusty Springfield singing, I'm going to make you love me, And I want to say this song is a remake of the Diana Ross and the Supreme song, I'm going to make you love me. So this is the Tom Jones show from 1970. Here we go.
5: I'm going to do all the things for you, a girl. What's a man to do? Oh, baby. in the book I try- Closer to you. All right. And with each beat of my heart, yeah. for every day we're apart, I'll hunger Ooh. for every wasted hour.
2: 70s to the max yeah yeah
1: t you can't see the dress she's wearing but it seriously looks like a kaleidoscope and it just reminds me how much i despised
2: suits in the 70s <laughs> and, and, ld knows i go off about this all the time whenever we watch anything that's 70s period he i, I hate 70s them. suits i hate them
1: you prefer 50s 60s yeah twilight's own like that era that's yeah well I that's mean. like a fancy like that's when they were making out of like quality material and not like polyester that's like the sinatra suit yeah i mean think about how much polyester and hairspray was on that stage oh, at one shit. time like if you know don't smoke around them because you could set them on fire Yeah, everyone was smoking <laughs> but let's talk about the vocals for a second because i think that's really something we need to focus on because i think she sounds brilliant oh she's fantastic
3: oh she sounded great there for sure
1: yeah it's just it's so crazy to me that she's she's having issues but she sound every time i play something for you guys has it been anything less than flawless nope
3: no including that you've played several live recordings i mean like like that one where it's not oh yeah I'm, I'm in the studio and i can try it again and try it again and do this verse over and stuff i mean you you get one one rip at it live and every everyone you've played you've played several live ones they've all been really good
1: yeah the I, most of the stuff that i've played has been live. Mm-hmm. The only thing i think that wasn't live was you don't have to say you love me. Mm. I think that was the only studio recording i think i've played for you guys so far. Now we get into the further we go into the years the the more that those tv appearances drop off and i'll I'll move to more of the studio album stuff. So, you know, it'll be more processed and clean, but even like raw and live, she sounds incredible. Cause I couldn't find anything that said like at this performance, she lip synced. So you can, and with those, you can even hear her breath throughout those vocals. So yeah. it's, it's you know, it's gotta be live. So as with every December and January came the NMEs and Dusty appeared in the following categories. She was the world female singer in first place. Uh, she was the world music personality in 16th place. And she was British female singer. She plays second place there. And Lulu came in first. <laughs> it's always Lulu. And she took eighth place in the British vocal personality category. All right. So in 1972, Dusty sold the home that she shared with Norma. She packed her bags and she moved to Los Angeles. When Dusty got to LA, she moved in an apartment, which was in Westwood on Hillgard. Do You, kn- you know that area, right? Yeah, that's... Uh... That's over by UCLA, if I remember. Actually, yeah. The particular block of apartments that she moved into were converted from all the dorms that used to belong to uh, the University of California. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, apparently it was a pretty depressing apartment complex (laughs) because they were all one color, which was mustard yellow. Oh. Yeah. Mustard yellow and avocado green seemed to be like the colors for the 70s. And uh, I'm glad that it's no longer the same. The suits and the colors were terrifying. I
2: I can do without those. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Still, she was really excited. Uh, Her agent was a popular gay man named Howard, and she had what was called the circuit coming up. Now, the circuit consisted of top class hotels across America where artists would entertain customers in like a showcase environment. This could be really grueling, but financially successful. The biggest problem for Dusty would be that she would get a huge suite at each of the hotels that she was touring in with 24-hour room service, a huge TV, and she was there for like you know 22 hours a day. She really did love hotel life, but the problem was that she'd be so exhausted by the time she was done with her show that the only thing that she was able to do was order a cheeseburger and fries and watch TV and pass out. It was really a lonely existence for her. Still, she would muddle through it. And at the West Side Room at the Century Plaza was where she would open up in those early days of 1972 that she would meet Faye Harris. Faye was a small, smart film journalist. And Dusty would live with her for the next six turbulent years. They had gone to the Cedar Plaza opening party, which was one of Hollywood's most exciting nights. Dusty's reputation in America was huge, and her fans included film stars and business moguls, people in the music industry, and there was this massive party being held for Dusty. And two hours after the party had started, Dusty turned up, but by then, Faye had left. Undeterred, Faye went back the next night to see the show and meet the singer. She was there, and she was very emotional when Faye talked about first seeing Dusty. She was talking about Ireland and the IRA and crying. I wasn't impressed with her because she was famous. I had been raised with famous people all my life. I was impressed because she was so articulate and passionate about the subject. And when she started to cry, I thought she was the most extraordinary person I had ever met. And I fell in love with her right there, which to me like breaks my heart. I love that. Over the next few months, when she was out on the road, Dusty and Faye would talk on the phone. Now, it should be stated that Dusty was actually worried in about the direction that her managers were taking her career in. It seemed like what they were doing was cookie cutter. They were just following a pattern that had worked in the past for other artists and then applied it for her. It didn't. They didn't seem to really understand what kind of artist she was. And so she really felt like she was just on a machine, like an assembly line. And so she didn't feel like anything was truly tailored for her. So by the summer, Dusty had left that horrible mustard apartment, and moved into a two-story house on Kings Road in West Hollywood, mm-hmm. which was an area known as Boys Town because of its large gay population. And West Hollywood is still known as like the hub for the gay community. Yeah. That's the kind of the the, the epicenter of pride.
4: Yes,
2: for, yeah, about the, the parade, the Halloween parade. Yeah, oh, God, the
1: Halloween parade is
2: awesome. The West Hollywood Halloween parade annual is something to behold.
1: It's awesome. I didn't realize what was happening because mm-hmm. I had first moved here. And it was my first Halloween here, and so I just wanted to go to Hollywood and, like, see the the costumes and see what kids, you know, dressing up as, and I love was playing all this stuff so i was like wandering around i did not realize that i had wandered into west hollywood <laughs> and there were the most beautiful elaborate costumes there were people that were still walking with like these huge butterfly wings and it was gore- like oh my god if you ever get a chance to go to west hollywood and see that do it do it don't even think about it Tell them Lindley sent (laughs) you. They're not going to know who I am, but you can tell them. Maybe that'll break the ice. You'll make some new friends. She loved it there, but she never actually unpacked. (laughs) Faye actually lived about three blocks away and Dusty was spending most of her time there anyhow. So finally they decided that they should just move in together And they moved into the hills of Studio City, which is actually close to where we're at right now. But they'd actually only be there a couple months with like a mattress on the floor. When one night Faye said to Dusty, wouldn't it be nice if we had a pool? So the next day, Dusty went and she bought a modern glass and wood house in Laurel Canyon that had a pool. Jeez. <laughs> now, she has a bad habit of just like wandering out buying houses. Yeah. I really hope that our when we go on the housing market that it's just that easy for us to like we like that one and then just give somebody money. We just just broke a
3: check. <laughs> it just broke a check and it's your house. Sure, just, that that would be awesome.
1: Yeah, no, if only. Yeah, <laughs> if only. That wasn't the only weird thing about this house. One day, Dusty went into the recreation room and she said, "This is as big as a bowling alley." That's that's my Dusty Springfield impression. I hope you liked it. It's pretty good. So something struck her and she was like, screw it. She called somebody and had bowling lanes installed the next day. Oh,
3: jeez. did great.
1: Yeah. So that's just an example of Dusty's impulsive nature. One day, Dusty decided to have a party and she, she invited all of her friends to bring cans of spray paint and write messages of good luck. On the large white empty walls and then she would just paint over them later the singers of the mamas and the papas cass Elliot and Anne margaret came along and lily tomlin was there with a can in hand and they started to cover the walls remember what i said just like 10 seconds ago where they were going to go back and paint them Mm -hmm. you know, covered up. But that never happened. Those messages stayed there until they moved out a few years later. How much would that wall be worth? I mean, think about it. Oh, if it was Anne Murray, Lily Lily Tomlin, Tomlin, and Mama Cass.
2: Yeah, Dusty Springfield.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because I didn't realize how close Mama Cass and Dusty were. But I have a great anecdote for later on. She comes up a lot, actually. Yes, yeah, she does. Well, she she was even in uh, featured in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, she at was at that party that the Roman Sharon... Polanski one, right? Yeah. yeah. The, well, I don't think it was Roman Polanski.
2: Well, he was a guest there.
1: Well, Sharon was. I thought he was. But like there. Steve McQueen was there, Mama Cass was there. That's right and, like, yeah. yeah, she she got around in Hollywood. We're gonna get to Mama Cass. I am gonna do her. Don't worry. I just want to make sure I have enough. Good material to use for her, and it wasn't a ham sandwich. She didn't choke on a ham sandwich. Moving on. All right. So on March third, nineteen seventy-three, Dusty attended the fifteenth annual Grammy Awards ceremony, which was held in Nashville that year. Which I didn't realize they would move cities.
2: Yeah, there's actually a, a contract currently where once every, I believe it's five years, it goes to New
1: York. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I, I pointed that out because it happened like it was like two, two years, years ago. ago. Yeah, yeah, just before the pandemic. And I was so confused. So, uh, together with Johnny Mathis, she presented the Grammy Award for the Concert for Bangladesh Turingo Star, and she also accepted the award for Best New Artist on behalf of the band America. Huh. Yeah.
2: They did this. Yes, and, the do, last, the last yes, year and do you
3: remember, back from our John Prine episode, who America beat for Best New Artist that year? Um, Rush. The, they beat the Eagles, Loggins and Messina, John Prine, and several other luminaries and it America. Went to America.
1: Uh-huh. But they did the soundtrack to The Last Unicorn. Yes,
3: they did. Consider it much much later. Yes.
1: So, that same year the album Solar Flare was released and it would hit its peak at number 96 on May 11th, 1974 for Manfred Mann. <laughs> and just like there
3: that, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Reference of the podcast has been satisfying.
2: Wow, that went yeah, that, that went somewhere
1: I did not expect. That is creepy. Please don't ever do that while you're in front <laughs> of us.
3: that's what uh that's what I was going for. <laughs> I just wanted to get sketchier and creepier every week.
1: Yeah, you're succeeding. So uh just something I think is awesome. On July 15th, 1973, Dusty attends and performs at Elton John's launch party for Rocket Records at Universal Studios in Los Angeles wow oh which i've been to i mean i used to work at universal studios and i don't know where they would have that part in the like where would they have that would that end? have been the
2: gibson which is now gone
1: or the buildings like one of the i don't even know if the you, the nbc universal building was there at the time yeah my guess would be going the theater i'm gonna guess whichever one could accommodate the largest amount of cocaine <laughs> <laughs> i don't think you're wrong All right. So on August 24th, 1973, Dusty releases Learn to Say Goodbye, which was released in the UK, but she didn't promote it at all, which is weird. But so, okay. So the circuit begins to drag. She Mm -hmm. starts to perform less and less. Ah. And she's spending a lot of time at home alone with five cats. Faye, if you'll remember, is a journalist. So she has a full time job. So she's out of the house most of the day. So, and they're in Los Angeles at this point. Yeah. Okay. They're in Los Angeles. So Dusty, like, just wanders around and hangs out and talks to the cats after drinking copious amounts of vodka and sleeping off a hangover. Got it. Yeah, she only had two people in Hollywood that she enjoyed hanging out with. One was Ann-Margaret, and the oh, wow. other was Angie Dickinson, who had been the wife of Burt Baccarat. So they would try to convince her to go to one of the watering holes, like the Green Cafe on San Vicente and Melrose, but Dusty wasn't the kind of person who would do lunch. So she's
2: living in essentially isolation. Like, Faye is not around much. Yeah. She's kind of on her own with very little friends in the I've area. I
1: mean, I feel like after the year that we've had, we've sort of can... Yeah, we can we can sympathize. Drinking booze and talking to cats is something we did, absolutely. I mean, I talked to the cats, you drank the booze. It's Correct. Fine. But,
3: but it, it balances
1: out. And then I she... would
3: like to have talked to I would like to have done those things and hung out with Anne Margaret. That'd have be been cool. But that um, would have been
1: cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, she was she gosh, she's always just been she's one of those people like Sophia Loren, like even in her older years, just banging gorgeous. Yeah, she looked great. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So she actually began to get angry with Faye. And she would say, like, snippy things, like, you have such a purposeful walk. It was, like, just getting those things that would, like, be biting to people, you know? But Faye wasn't a woman who would be intimidated, and she would just, you know, write out whatever Dusty was throwing at her. It just seemed like Dusty was starting to, like, nitpick her Hmm. and, like, point out things that were just fundamentally her. Be like, I don't like the way your head is shaped. That kind of thing. Dusty would take a few mandraks. I think that's how you say it, mandraks. Mandraks? But... Are you looking up what a Mandrax is? I am, actually. Uh, Mandrax, which is also known as mandrakes,
2: Mandis, and MX. It's it's a methoqualone. Well, it's
1: got the word metho in it. Right. So. It's,
2: it's basically, a, it's a depressant, and apparently it's extremely addictive, and it can have hypnotic effects when consumed. Is it still on the market? Looks like it was around in the 70s. Is it used to, uh, it was used to treat depression, So she was probably getting it legally from her doctor. And then perhaps just like- Oh, no, no, she she wasn't. No, Mandrax was illegal from the go. Huh. Yeah. It's categorized in the same vein as ecstasy, heroin, and
1: cocaine. Oh, dear. So it's that class of drug. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because she would use that just to make the world go away or like add a little bit of vignette when she would go out and buy a bottle of vodka.
2: Well, you'll like this. It's fondly referred to what James Taylor called lewds.
1: Oh, I thought
3: that yeah, was Quaaludes. So it's quite so Quaaludes.
1: It, it, it seems like it's we'll a, see, because later on, they make a, a, a very significant uh, differentiation between Quaaludes and Mandrakes.
2: Yeah, the, the root is methylqualum, which is also used in Quaaludes. Okay. But, yeah. So it has the same root uh, substance that makes it addictive.
1: Well, uh, you know, to lighten things up a little bit... <laughs> So she had a friend from England, her friend Lee. And, you know, there weren't a whole lot of Kentucky fried chickens on that side of the pond. So they ordered a big bucket of it. And after they were done eating, Lee went to go toss the bones into the trash. And Dusty was like, no, don't do that because the cats will get a hold of it and they'll choke. So she was like, okay, can I just stick it in this cabinet and I'll take it out later that night? And she was like, no, 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 you can't do that. What about the microwave? Nope. So finally, Lee got like super pissy and just opened up the garden doors and tossed him into the pool. Oh, so over the next couple of days, uh, the pool took on a surreal life of its own. There were chairs, chicken bones, and uh, even some mannequin legs. How did... Yeah, wait, hold Oh, okay. They, yeah. they were all submerged into the pool. Comes out that that mannequin was stolen by Dusty and Lee on one of their salacious outings. When Lee left, you couldn't see the pool for the things that they had floating in it. That's frightening. And was it was it Bowie who was convinced Satan was in his pool? Yeah, Bowie. That was Bowie? Bowie. Okay. Yeah, apparently he never visited Dusty Springfield's pool because right? it had chicken and mannequin legs. There's a lot of reason not to swim in that pool. There's so many yeah. reasons. So uh, one night on the grounds of the Beverly Hills Hotel, Dusty was trying to negotiate the path to the bungalow that Elton John and his manager, John Reed, were sharing. Now, that name... John Reed should sound very familiar. It does. Because John Reed was not only Elton John's manager, but also his lover and the manager of Queen.
2: I didn't know that first part. Oh. Yes. I no, I don't think I knew any of that. That's interesting. Second part, yes, but not the first.
1: Look, guys, it's it's called digging for a story. It's education. <laughs> All right. Dusty finally made it to his door, but she kept tripping over the stones and was slightly worse for the wear. Elton opened up the door and Dusty was giggling uncontrollably. Now, over the next few hours, Dusty was veering from like laughter to sobbing. I mean, we've all been there to like the, the, the point where you're so drunk that, mm-hmm. like, you know, one minute you're singing, you know, karaoke, and the next minute you're like, nobody likes me. I was
2: going to say waltzing Matilda, but that
3: works. And the next, I was saying the next, and the next moment you're laying sideways across your bed, shirtless with a wastebasket full of vomit. Uh, not that I've ever experienced that specific
4: thing no Um, no no
1: no. i'm not saying i've been in the back seat of my car while someone else drove it through the del taco drive-thru it's not like you're sleeping on a bag of doritos folks you did that what no i didn't no you had your head in the laundry basket no
2: no i didn't i had my head on a bag of Toastitos. oh
1: please let's get it right fair enough So Elton was trying to convince her to get back into the recording studio and Dusty had already worked with him providing some of the backups on some of his tracks for the Tumbleweed Connection LP. He asked why she couldn't do a number for him for his new album and Dusty's like, I can't, my voice is gone. Like at this Mm. point, she's kind of resigned herself. She has blown her voice because if she does a program, she has to have a shot of cortisone or she's lip syncing. Uh. So, I mean, she just needs to rest. That's the biggest and thing. She's, and
3: she's also doing lots of things, it sounds like, that aren't real helpful to your voice.
1: Exactly. exactly. It's talking to those cats. It just wears it out. Put her attitude down as a mixture of drinks and drama, he eventually convinced her to do some backing tracks on Caribou. She would be working with people that she knew, and, and nobody was expecting anything. And if anything, it might give her some of her confidence back. The session was scheduled late at night when Dusty's voice seemed to be at its best unfortunately that wasn't true this night it became clear after the first half hour that her voice was nearly gone and she was squirming with embarrassment dusty struggled to hit the high notes and kept starting and stopping and it was it was grueling to watch and for everybody in the studio and for her wow the worst thing was that she thought that she would always have one thing she always thought she would have her voice and it's gone she called it quits for the night and she was furious with herself. And But she was able to actually come back later in the week and finish up the track by some miracle, hmm. but something had clicked. She was even more angry when she found out that another British singer had been signed by Elton John, which was Kiki D.
2: So you're telling me Don't Go Breaking My Heart could have been Dusty Springfield?
1: Yep. In some kind of alter. Oh, wow. Yep. That is something. He signed her to his label and later duetted with her on the song don't go breaking my heart which became a huge hit i wouldn't if i tried but here's the thing like i was looking it up and you guys know that that, it's so indelibly marked with our childhood because of our upbringing but apparently that wasn't one of elton john's most popular songs really yeah apparently it didn't do very well and it's weird because we you know we don't think about charts when we're listening to a song like how high did Come On Eileen actually get? You know how how popular was well, it, it was O'Reilly?
3: number well it, that's a bad example because that one did go to number one. <laughs> but,
1: well, I mean, well, but like we don't know well, how far it went.
3: I'll tell you that in our next series, you will find out. There's a song that if I mentioned it to you, you would go, "Oh, I bet that was that was a big number one hit that never charted." Really? Yeah.
4: I mean, there's,
2: what?
3: there's a very popular song by a very popular artist that's almost considered like American songbook canon kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it, it never charted in the United States ever.
1: Yeah, well, that's kind of what happened with this song. But mm-hmm. I mean, but we'll, well, I don't, I, if you ask me any other Kiki D songs, I probably wouldn't be able to know it. But, but it might be one of those cases where like she's really big in Britain, but didn't really translate over here. Well, this was after the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album, correct? That's correct. He's already launching his own record. Yeah, he's doing his thing. Yeah. So at this time, she's not recording her own albums. She was getting recording work, mainly doing backups or doing things what's called scratch tracks or demo tapes of Songs for Writers. Cass Elliot was also on the circuit. God, we've got to do Cass Elliot. She just keeps coming up. She does. And she has had such an interesting life. So uh, Cass Elliot was also working the circuit and was in the habit of overcompensating hmm. uh, for certain things and found themselves in certain places. And they discovered each other one night after a late session. And, uh, you know, they were having a couple drinks and Dusty and Lee Everett decided to give Cass a ride home from the English pub on the Sunset Strip. Now, I don't know this pub particularly, but I assume that, um, you know, it's probably near like Whiskey-A-Go-Go, the Rainbow Room. Yeah, I'm thinking about that block and just
2: what could have been there. Like, where is the English pub? Yeah, because there's one on, there is one on Sunset. I forget the name of it. Is it Happy Ending? Something, uh, Coach and Horses? Maybe. That might
1: have been it. Yeah, we can look it up later, yeah. but but they were at the English pub, and by the time that they arrived at Cass's house, Mama Cass had passed out in the backseat. Oh, jeez. Getting her out was not going to be an easy job. They tried to remove her, and after some heaving from Dusty and Lee, who were not entirely sober themselves, uh, as dawn was breaking, they contemplated that predicament. After unsteadily walking up and down the street, they spotted a wheelbarrow. and um relieved their owner of it so they took the wheelbarrow they figured out how to shove Cass out of the car (laughs) got her into the wheelbarrow navigated up to the front door where they rang the doorbell and took off running so they left mama Cass on the front door of her house in a wheelbarrow i just like the
2: terminology they relieved their owner of it
3: they relieved their owner of it and then they left her on the on somebody's doorstep and rang the bell like it was a, f- a burning bag of dog food.
1: I really hope that was her house and some stranger didn't open up the door. And they're like, "What the hell is Mama Cass doing?" <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, hey, look, it's, it's a the Mama
4: Cass. Yeah. It's Honey, a, an
1: unconscious Mama Cass
2: in yeah. a wheelbarrow
1: <laughs> on my porch.
2: Even better if it was like Keith Richards. He's like, "Oh, hello." That's my
1: Keith the Richards. two of away. them. Yeah. yeah. All right. So Anne Murray tapped Dusty to do some work on her. Blue Finger Lou album and Dusty started to feel a little bit better and so she started hanging out with Vicky and Nona in Paris and they went out to a a lady bar. For ladies who like ladies? Yes. Got it. And she was feeling so good that she took Faye to the dance floor to dance the merengue and it caused quite a stir. The crowd that night suddenly realized who was in their midst, and they were enamored. They followed her to the ladies' room, hung out with her at the table, and when she left, she was in really good spirits. So, like, she goes to this gay bar, she hangs out, people realize who she is, and all of a sudden, she feels like Holy crap, I might still be relevant. Hmm. It should be noted at this point that didn't Dusty didn't put out anything professionally or travel or tour for all of 1975. She would record backing tracks and scratch tracks but, but nothing for her own. And seriously, I even showed you T, the the picture of the timeline in that book right. where it's it goes 1974, 1976. 1975 was just a lost year for the person that was writing this. So she's not doing really anything. It's just this lost year. Didn't the other book have stuff on it? The other book did, but the, the one book is focused on her personal life and the other one is her professional life. Okay. And professionally, there's just a lost year. I, I should say going forward in the story, it does jump timelines just a hair, but uh, hopefully you guys can keep up because um, there are timestamps for this stuff. There are date stamps, but it does jump a little bit. By the summer of 1975, Dusty was so desperate at the lack of her success and the constant emptiness of her days. This is where it gets heavy, guys. I'm really sorry. She starts cutting herself with alarming regularity. Mm. The first time anybody realizes that Dusty would take such drastic steps to deal with her overwhelming feeling was at the time of her ill-fated talk of the town season, if you guys remember. Mm -hmm. But when Madeline sees her at the apartment they had been renting in her London stay, Dusty had taken her from the cluster of record company people to a side room. She showed her friend the lacerated arms and legs, and both women broke down in tears. She knows now that she can never wear short sleeves anymore, and it made her really sad. It was just those Dusty demons. Madeline had tried to convince Dusty not to go back to L.A., but you know she knew that her career depended on her returning to America. Well, when record companies realized that Dusty was in no shape to release new material, they actually went to her back catalog and that stuff sold well enough, but it really pissed her off because yeah, the money was great, Mm. but she felt like the re-releases of her old material would keep her stuck in this particular time. But sometimes they'd actually re-release stuff that was the wrong mixes or they would use the wrong vocal track And just that that, like she could never move forward from her old material
2: and i think it's also frustrating because it's the record company they own that material so i don't think she has a say right yeah i don't
1: i don't think so but Mm -hmm. yeah
3: artists artists had like almost no autonomy or or say so or any nothing at the time they don't don't, know they really had nothing then
1: yeah well When she'd have nobody to hang out with, she would just hang around in her nightgown and comfort eat. And something that was really weird, I'm about to say, she would clean the floor of the kitchen just to make it shine. Which, if you guys have, you know, tuned into the last couple of episodes of this, you guys realize how much of a spot the kitchen has in Dusty's history but it was almost like she was overcompensating she she would go in there and she would frantically clean the kitchen floor till it shone uh now she was a size or two larger and she would refuse to go into the stores to get her clothes so she would just order from high quality mail-in catalogs the amazon of that day yeah like she would she would refuse because then she would be ashamed if a sales girl saw her picking something out Mm. and seeing how much weight she had gained. But like, you know, it's, it's not the healthiest lifestyle that Dusty was living at the time. She would get bored and she started taking other pills other than the Mandrax. So she's starting to, she's starting to pile up on this stuff. And the thing is that paramedics would have to be called to her house from time to time because she would cut her arm so badly that that people were worried about the blood loss. So Faye said that she never knew what to expect when she would come home. She might get the good Dusty, the one that was like talkative, engaging, friendly, sweet, but sometimes she would get out of control and she would become desperate and then she would injure herself. Now, it should be noted that she would never attack another person. Like it was never... She was never violent against anyone else. It was always internalized Mm -hmm. from Dusty. And she would say things and then just take off running. She would stay in a hotel somewhere in Los Angeles. And in those days, throwing things, which was once a joke and like something funny that they would do, you know, it's just like a little quirk, It became dangerous and serious. She was now destroying rooms full of her own possessions. And uh, Billie Jean King remembers one night being awakened and it was an emergency she was smashing car windows. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And she and her husband did what they could to kind of help sort everything out. You guys remember Rosie, the um, the tennis player? She was friends with Billie Jean King. That they, I think I kind of mentioned her uh, in passing in uh, episode one did they play together i'm wondering i like, well i mean that i'm sure yeah. that they they played together but rosie and billy jean were both tennis players and they were both friends with dusty so uh, dusty was staying at a house or sorry uh, rosie was staying in her house in san francisco uh, just for three days before one of her periods of hospitalization she trashed the place so bad rosie had to move out Jeez. yeah wow She stayed at Jeff Carson's in New York. Before she went to Bellevue, she smashed his crockery and blew out several of his windows.
2: And then they sent her to Bellevue? Yeah. Oh, jeez.
1: It took a lot of work, but Dusty was finally diagnosed as being manic depressive. But she would never really focus on the problems. Although once her parents died, she talked a little bit more freely about her family, but she would never open up about her childhood or, like, when it came to anything really serious. When it came to analysis, she wouldn't offer up anything of substance, but no matter how much her friends pleaded, she refused to get any kind of serious psychological help. And uh, she saw a lot of doctors due to being hospitalized, but she actually never saw any of them more than once.
2: With all due respect to the medical profession, I would imagine that advances in that area were probably not that it was probably pretty crude at that time, no? I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of misdiagnoses, they were, pills. They were probably still dealing with phrenology. Th- they might have been. And all joking aside, they might have done things like electroshock. And I mean, oh, yeah. at that point, sure. I don't think there was bona fide treatment for these conditions.
1: Yeah, I, I think that it was still kind of in its infancy. And also, it was still a point of shame. Like, now yeah. we're getting to the point we're talking about mental health is we've normalized it, I feel like we're, we're moving in the right direction to be able to have a, a conversation about mental health that isn't where you have to hide in the shadows. It doesn't have to be behind closed doors. They're actually, you know, God bless Georgia Hardstark and uh, Karen Kilgariff, because they, they, I feel like in the podcast world, at least they really kind of led the way on the the talking about mental health, where Georgia would uh, show how many pills were in her hand, and she's like, "This is what I take to be normal."
4: Jeez,
1: and that's that's a conversation that we can have now, but back then it was still kind of a a, a place of shame. Like, and and to put it into perspective, T, you're not even born yet,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, I think at that point you were just labeled as quote crazy end quote, right? That I mean, was kind sure, of sure, exactly. Yeah,
3: you were you were quote crazy.
4: Yeah, I and mean, you didn't I mean,
3: talk about it, and you just kind of shuffled those folks off to wherever you shuffled them and you didn't really talk about them that much and yeah it was like you said point of shame very taboo because there was the idea still and some people still have it but like if I, if you, if Dusty had broken her leg, well, of course you go to the doctor and you get it fixed. But if there's something wrong up here, right, in, in, in your mind, then somehow you're unfixable. I think that's kind of how people viewed that at that time.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a few years before, but even, you know, the Kennedys, I think it's Rose Kennedy, had a full lumbotomy.
2: Did she really? Yeah. Oh, geez.
1: And they hid her away. Oof. She appeared in photos, but no one ever saw her in public. They, they, they institutionalized her
2: i was gonna say she is in the kennedy family pictures yeah wow that's dark
1: yeah they 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 sent her away they lobotomized her you know and that's and that was kind of like the thing was just like jam a stick in your head and scramble it about a little bit and that'll probably calm you down so and i feel like
3: let's hook you up to some jumper cables i'm sure that'll make stuff better
1: right yeah well it's it's not your heart like you shouldn't be able to defibrillate your brain you know but i think they even still do electroshock therapy is it still sanctioned i don't I know i think it i think it is in because carrie fisher went through electro yes, she did you're right carrie fisher went uh, through
3: I so did for that for that matter just to keep it on the musical front eric clapton did
1: oh yeah really that yeah. i did not know
3: for for heroin addiction if i'm not mistaken
2: wow he was addicted that is true
3: but i think that's that was a means of of treating that
1: i think Jim, james taylor as well when he was Battling his addiction. Yeah. So thinking about it. So we're going to be jumping back in time because I, I, I know that we talked about 1975 being like a, a barren area, but I, d- I don't want to not touch on her musical stuff. So backing up to 1973, she releases Cameo. It's her eighth studio album and it was recorded in the US between July and October of 1972. It was produced by Steve Barry, Dennis Lambert and Brian Potter, who later went on to write and produce major hits for... For, you know, just a couple people to mention Glenn Campbell, the four tops, uh, and the album included material written by Alan O'Date, David Gates, uh, Nicholas Ashford, Valerie Simpson, that should be familiar, right? Uh, indeed. Uh-huh. Ashford and Simpson and Van Morrison. Wow. Yeah. Any- anybody we've heard of? I mean, just I mean, just yeah. or some...
3: just some struggling young musicians, it sounds <laughs> like.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there were up and comers, but you know, hmm. So the reason why I bring up Cameo, not just to be able to shoehorn in an awesome music break, but it was the first LP for the ABC Dunhill Records label, which released it in the US. Uh, It was released just in the UK by Phillips Records, which it's weird because I keep going back to Phillips Records, even though she's like severed ties with them. I guess they're still, they still have a contract, I guess. Eh. Uh, The album was a commercial failure. Uh, It didn't chart in the UK or the US and a planned second album, which was the working title called Elements, eventually retitled Longing, was started but never finished due to Springfield's personal problems at the time. Most of the uncompleted album Longing can be found on the Hippo Records compilation Beautiful Soul which was released after her death in just the US in 2001.
2: I wonder if the record company is like playing it safe with no official
1: contract. Maybe that's what they're doing? Maybe. So I think it's time for a music break because we've dealt with some heavy stuff. So here's a song off the Cameo album, which is called All of the Thanks. <laughs> And we're back. I really like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it it's was good. It's a beautiful song, but you were saying something uh, when we were listening to it. Yeah, You, nailed,
2: you nailed the comparison, I, I think. Uh, well.
4: Two
1: artists came to mind, Carol King and Carly Simon. I heard both. Yep. And, but see, and for me, the purity in the voice was very reminiscent of Karen Carpenter for me.
2: Well, I think we were just talking earlier, or maybe in the last week about, I, th- I feel like their voices are similar, yeah. Karen and Dusty. There's a quality, like you said, it's i think you said it's the purity but yeah vocal quality but but musically i think that sounded a lot like carol king or carly simon
1: and that's there's just something about that song that is so beautiful but so sad that's a great song you know it's yeah it was really good compare that to something uh, compares that to something like uh, you don't have to say you love me which is one of those songs that's like it screams of sadness and desperation but it's still got that quality of like a this is a lovely that song from cameo is just so sad it really is. And it has that
2: sort of, again, like you said, a feeling of love lost versus... Yeah. It's almost like Joni Mitchell with the
1: both sides now. Two oh different my recordings. God, the two different yeah. versions of both sides now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by the end of the year, Dusty finally realized that she was unable to control her drinking. And the only way that she might cope was to join Alcoholics Anonymous. She started out attending groups at Cedar sinai which was full of film stars and musicians. But people kept going on national TV and talking about their experiences there. And she had this childlike belief that Alcoholics Anonymous should be anonymous.
2: To to be fair, it is in the title.
1: Yeah. But it's really funny because, you you know, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, and the first thing that you do is you stand up and tell people your name.
2: Well, it's within the group, though. The idea is
4: the group is
3: anonymous. Uh, The group. There's a group dynamic that you're not supposed to veer outside of. And uh, and
2: for... For the record, I, I know several people who are part of that group here in L.A., and they will not disclose
1: the names of their sponsors because they're actually names you would know. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. I mean, but we live in Hollywood where, like, you can pick yeah. up a rock and hit somebody famous. True. And so the biggest thing also was that people that weren't famous were going to the press and telling their stories about Dusty and, and telling a story that isn't her story.
3: Well, those people were assholes pardon my language yeah like you went to alcoholics anonymous which you you take a vow or sign i believe sign something and you 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 know that you're not going to discuss who you see there what takes place there we got okay everybody i'm sure who listens to the show knows by now i work for a newspaper we had a person who um was a a recovered alcoholic who wrote a book and he mentioned and at some point in the course of of the interview when my one of my reporters talked to him that he, you know, went to AA meetings, and somebody sent us a very lengthy, very angry email that we had even mentioned in the story, even though the guy said so. I mean, he offered it up without us asking that he was a member of AA. And they say, like, you know, and they they and then I think mailed us like uh, the mission statement or a pamphlet or something from them. And it and like underlined a bunch of stuff like anonymous, anonymous, anonymous. You should not have put this in the paper. I'm like, well, the guy told us. I didn't know, you know, people who do it are very uh, who, who do it, it. The the point is, if you go to those meetings and then you go say, oh, guess who I saw? AA? Hey, hey, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, You're a prick. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a yeah. That's you're betraying you're betraying the confidence uh, of, of these people, and God knows what you're doing to them mentally. If yeah. you're her, you probably you know, and and it suddenly is like national news. Oh well, Dusty Springfield's an alcoholic. Who knows what that's going to do to her? Exactly.
1: Well, in in some cases, that could really mess with even your sobriety.
3: That that's that's what I'm saying is that it, it could throw you back into a really bad place when you went through a you went there specifically for the idea that. Okay, I can go there and nobody's going to know about it. And the people there are going to be welcoming and they're not going to go blab. And then they do. Yeah. That's, that's you're whoever, whoever did that, if you're still alive, you're horrible.
1: (laughs) So, I mean, I feel like
3: you're an awful, terrible person.
1: I feel like there's a special circle of hell for paparazzi and then people who blow the cover off of uh, alcoholics, like in recovery. So
3: that's, that's terrible. That's a, that's terrible. It really is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, you know what, it's, it's one of the most vile things because you're, you're damaging someone's psyche. So to kind of curtail this, she started going to a smaller AA meeting, you know, not, not because I mean, we've all heard of Cedar sinai even if you've never been to Los Angeles. So she started to go seek out like smaller groups and she would go under the name of Mary as opposed to Dusty, because remember her name was Mary. Yeah the risk of her being noticed or recognized was a lot smaller. So now Dusty would meet three women in her time in and out of AA and those women were Helen, Suzanne, and Peggy. And of course I did leave their their names out, their last names out specifically. I do believe that the book does name drop them, but again, oh. that's not their sto- that's not my story to tell. So but in some way or another as this story progresses these three women will save her life at some point. All three of them will save her life at different points. So during a coffee break at an AA meeting in 1976, Dusty noticed a tall blonde woman who looked like Lauren Bacall standing on her own. Mary, funny ears, Mary, approached her and said hi. They exchanged phone numbers and Dusty said, if you ever need help, give me a call. Dusty had a couple meetings under her belt and felt like Helen- a newcomer might need some support. And as a part of the AA coda, it was a mutually supportive organization so that the members would help each other out. And, you know, they would they would appoint you a sponsor and it'd be somebody who you can call whenever you needed help being pulled back from the brink, you know, because you have these people that are in recovery longer than you. Helen, remember that she was offended that Dusty immediately took her for an alcoholic. Yeah. She could have been there as an observer, for God's sakes. But, you know, she said... Alcoholics recognize each other. That was a direct quote uh, for the next few weeks, Helen would get phone calls from Dusty anywhere between midnight and two am and and Dusty would call this like the witching hour the devil hour. like those are the that midnight to two was like the worst time for her to not drink. yeah, like Oof. she she always found herself at that time drinking. So she would get that call at between twelve and two in the morning. It was one of her oldest habits was she wasn't able to sleep for those two hours. And it was that way her entire life. Like she would stay up during that time frame. So it was like not abnormal for Dusty to be awake during that time. When her roommate, Andy, picked up the phone, he said that there was something about the way that she spoke. It was a voice... And it was the accent. And he was like, I know that. I know I recognize this voice from somewhere. After Helen got her 30-day chip, she took her roommate, Andy, to meet Dusty. After a few minutes of talking, Andy, who worked as a musical director, said, you were the one on the phone, weren't you? She was like, yeah, of course. And he goes, you're not Mary O'Brien. You're Dusty Springfield. So he knew her voice. She was impressed that he knew who she was. And even more impressed that Helen had no idea who she was. So... She was like, oh, that's great. You know me. Oh, even better. You don't know me. Uh, over the course of their relationship, Helen would pick up Dusty some of the times that she would be rushed to the hospital. In the autumn of 1976, the highly successful LaBelle's were booked to do a concert at Oakland near San Francisco as part of a West Coast tour. Vicki Vicky Wickham, who was the group's manager knew Dusty needed to get back on stage. She was really pushing for Dusty to just try, dip her toe, like go take some chances. You know, she's in recovery. Just get out on stage. This will make your life better. So she... Booked her to do a number with Patty, Nona, and Sarah Dash. She had done a little session work with other people's recordings, but it had taken nearly four years since Dusty had undertaken an a live appearance in America.
2: Wow. Yeah. Four years between?
1: Yeah. Wow. Now back with Faye at the house and Dusty being been in the middle of a short period of sobriety, thought, sure, why not? she spent two years in and out of rehab she now got to take a stage where her only responsibility was sing in tune have a good time and apparently she did both of them wonderfully
4: there you go
1: so she was back <sighs> it was past midnight when the show finished and she went back to the hotel and patty labelle rustled up some grub which was uh ribs and green So tea i'm pretty sure you'd appreciate that
3: <laughs> absolutely
1: <laughs> on a hot plate in a room, Dusty, Faye, Patty, Nona, and Sarah talked all night. As dawn broke, Dusty and the group were singing an acapella version of Isn't It a Shame. It was the end of a perfect evening. Mm. Dusty could count on her fingers how many good days she had now. Back in Los Angeles, Barry Cross managed to get Dusty a new contract with United Artists. Mm. And she was lined up for her sessions with the British producer, roy thomas baker who worked on the queen albums with freddie really yes
2: a lot of queen tie-ins here
1: uh, Matthew and I say that she really enjoyed working with Baker because he got her. But in all honesty, uh, it might have been that he was working on so many projects that he actually would just leave her alone and let her cut up the album the way that she wanted to. So
3: She seemed like somebody who maybe needed a good producer, though, because you you talked about how she was such a perfectionist. She would go over like every syllable of every word she sang. And it's like, it sounds like it, she seemed like the type who needed a good Strong producer to give her some guidance and hmm. occasionally to go, like, Yeah, Dusty, that was that's you can't do better than you just did. <laughs> you can sing one more word now.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: keep the session or, or, going. Or, or, she,
3: she, from what you have told us, it, she seems like the type who left to her own devices would take 17 years to make a song, <laughs> much less an entire album.
1: Yeah, but that song would be
3: perfect. Oh, well, when she, when she, when it came out 17 years hence it would be killer it would be banging i'm sure
2: but it's also a tough sell to go to AM and be like we got this song They'll be like great when can you get the album and you'd be like uh 34 years
3: <laughs> uh we're figuring like uh 2030 maybe yeah give or take something yeah. like that yeah she should be done with it by then
2: it's <laughs> gonna be really good
1: though yeah it's coming along great she's got four syllables
3: <laughs> yeah i mean she's all she's almost to the first bridge of the first song we're really excited almost. about it.
1: <laughs> it's going great uh, so one day, Dusty was cutting her final tracks for It All Begins Again in West Hollywood when she learned that Faye was going to leave her. Despite attending AA, seemingly only staying sober for a few weeks at a time, she was on a variety of pills. Uh, she was doing, ta- like, taking various assortments of pills, and tablets, and just to deal with her fluctuating weight. And now, you know, the woman that she's been dating is now leaving her
3: and dating for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for a really long time, Helen was getting calls, you know, from Dusty and it seemed to happen almost nightly. So one night, Dusty didn't call and then 24 hours passed with no call from Dusty. So without the phone calls, knowing that she's dealing with the recording sessions, knowing that her girlfriend was leaving her, Helen began to feel uneasy. She rang Suzanne, who was Someone who worked in real estate and had known her for many years and had been one of Dusty's sponsors actually mm-hmm. for AA. Uh, Suzanne agreed that it was unlike Dusty not to call. And that she hadn't heard from her either she would just go over to the house and check and make sure everything was okay it was not at first suzanne thought dusty was drunk and passed out but when she couldn't get her to answer the door she looked through the glass doors at the back of the house she could see into the kitchen and uh, to quote i could see dusty on the floor and i started to pound on the door to wake her up when dusty didn't move i became so frantic and I broke the glass and rushed in. I could see Dusty wasn't breathing, nor did she have a pulse. I was shaking her and screaming and trying to phone an ambulance at the same time. There were aspirins everywhere and an empty bottle of vodka and all this dirt because she had fallen into a potted plant. Wow. At Cedar Cyanide, Mary O'Brien was in emergency for six hours and at the start it was touch and go and they weren't sure that she was even going to pull through. Finally she was transferred to the psychiatric lockup. She was you know placed in a bed with these metal sides where she really couldn't get out and Suzanne was waiting there for hours, for her to wake up. Finally, her eyes flickered and focused on Suzanne, and all she could say was, "Oh shit!"
3: Wow. So, I'm just going to say that um, obviously, there there she had to have some pulse and some degree of breathing. Both were probably extremely shallow because of all the stuff she'd taken. Because if she'd not breathed for that long, then she would have been dead or yeah. if they'd been able to revive her, she would not have, she would not have been able to function. So, yeah. was, you know, like that, the black of that, that lack of, of oxygen to the brain for that long. But I mean, probably she had taken something or a lot of something, things you may touch on that in a minute. I don't know, but, um, to where her, her pulse was un, almost undetectably shallow, but still there. Breath, undetectably shallow, but there. Because who knows how long she'd been laying there. And then they, you know, she calls, and the ambulance comes. And then that's a long time to go without breathing, if that's what happened, is my point.
1: Right. No, and I think, well, I think well, it's, it says that she had an empty bottle of vodka and a bunch of aspirin everywhere. So I assume she had taken a lot of those. And I don't know. It's not stated if this was a genuine suicide attempt or if it was an accident
2: and there could have been other pills yeah
1: but but, but, But
3: i I would say liquor and aspirin are both are both yeah tremendous blood thinners Hmm. yeah i don't know yeah i don't know what that would have i don't know what that would do
4: to you I,
1: yeah, I assume. Actually, I think it. Okay, this is me without a medical degree, pulling some just stuff out of my butt. But I think if you thin the blood enough, isn't it just moving so fast that you really can't, like your your heart doesn't have to work as hard? Or it'll drop your
2: blood pressure. if That's what you're saying.
1: Yeah. Right.
2: To the point where it's not a good thing. I, I think. Yeah. I, I think that is correct. Yeah
1: because uh they don't really touch on it. They don't uh, that's the thing that Vicky Wickham does in this book is she will drop something and then just sort of scoot away from it mm. because you know that they had this like 40 year relationship. When her single Let Me Love You Once came out in June, Barry had decided that he would keep Dusty away from the press. 2 weeks earlier, the Daily Mail reported that the exiled British singer was fighting off rumors of ill health, which you know Go go F yourself, guys. Yeah. Sorry. But Dusty added another weapon to her arsenal of addictions, cocaine. Ay. Which was in Hollywood in the 70s, was so easy to get a hold of. It was like coffee, basically. And people were just giving it away. here's a mirror with a ton of Coke on it, so. That Christmas, December 1977, Dusty spent it with her father in Los Angeles, because, so she is spending time with her family. In early 1978, A Love Like Yours is released in the UK, and at the end of January, she arrives in London for a 10-day promotional trip. February 2nd, 1978, she held a press conference at the Savoy Hotel, and things aren't great when she lands at Heathrow Airport. From the moment that she arrives, she was in trouble. The press reported that Dusty had a high court writ issued against her, which I guess is kind of like a lien? I don't know. not sure
2: what that.
1: yeah. Uh, the review commissioner claimed that she owned a hefty amount on surtax and interest from 1970 and 1971. The tax assignment agreed by her accountants. So it's like the IRS. Yeah. Yeah, the British so equivalent. Yeah. She owed a bunch of money. Which I think she might have paid off. Doesn't really oh. this, but but the issue is like once she lands, like immediately, like they're like, "Welcome to Heathrow. You owe us six, you know, million dollars." A check. Well, um, there you know there were a lot of
3: British musicians who became tax uh, tax exiles and just wouldn't go back. That's what. Or, or did. would be ga- or would be gone, ga- stay gone for really really long periods of time. If you think back to our uh, John Bonham episode, uh, Bonham was the only member of Led Zeppelin who actually whose residence was in England and who lived there, the rest of them were tax exiles. And yeah. they couldn't play a show on British soil for something like 10 years at one stretch, oh. I think.
1: It was the same way.
3: And a lot of the stones were tax. I think all the stones were. Yeah, they all are, tax yeah. exiles, yeah. Well- So not, 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 un- not uncommon at the time.
1: Correct. But she didn't seem to scoot out before the time had come for her to pay those taxes. So, right. So she still owed, because- You notice it's only from 1970 to 71 and this now we're in 78 and then there was a question of her sexuality which was constantly hanging over her head. For over 10 years the British press tried to attempt to link her with a man. Literally any man. So T you were asking that before had she been linked to a man. The British press actually dug and dug and couldn't find a link but uh, the tabloid journalist asked if there wasn't something missing in her life. A, A tabloid journalist first ask if there wasn't something missing in her life. Do I wish I had a man? Not all the time. Was there one at the moment? No, she didn't need a man by her side. If you have a hole inside you, you can't fill it with someone else's personality. Dusty was about to go on a nationwide tour and it was her first anywhere in 10 years. And it was to culminate in, in two nights at the Royal, on drury lane in london but the out-of-town tickets were a disaster and the dates were pulled dusty was devastated oh, but because we need a lighthearted story right now i want to tell you that she phoned mike gill who uh if you guys remember was working at the talk of the town when she had that night where elton john and rod Sewer was there and the and She was like 40 minutes late and the doctor had to come and shoot her for cortisone. And that's when Elton and and Rod Stewart were like cheering her on from the audience, right? Yes. Yeah. So she phoned up Mike Gill, who was working for Billy Gass, and she told him that she really wanted tea at the Ritz. So at the Ritz in the Piccadilly, sitting under a palm tree in the luxurious surroundings, like, this is a fancy hotel, okay? It's the Ritz. And uh, it was beautiful and serene. And it was broken by the clink of bone china teacups waiting for his ex-client to turn up. Mike Gill said he looked out of the corner of his eye and saw a multicolored apparition whizzing down the deep-piled carpets of the Ritz toward him. It was dusty on roller skates. Oh my. Mike said that she was probably the only person that could get away with it as people have been kicked out of the Ritz for doing less. (laughs) But could you just think about this, like Dusty wearing her like mod outfit, big beehive, just rolling down plush carpet in roller skates. In the Ritz-Carlton, yeah. In the (laughs) Ritz-Carlton. That's
4: hilarious.
1: Okay, so uh, in June of 1978, Dusty started working on a new album with David Wolfret. The first song that was recorded was uh, Be Somebody, and You Really Got a Hold of Me. So right now, We're going to listen to Dusty Springfield's version of You Really Got a Hold of Me because I really like this version and we need a musical break. and we're back hey all right so i mean like that's a that's a cover so what do you guys think
2: again it totally it's, has it's that a f- very
1: it's a very faithful
2: cover
3: mm-hmm. for starters it sounds a lot like the original but i mean like everything we've heard her voice sounds great i mean yeah it,
2: and at this point allegedly her voice is like you said it's not as strong but it still it still holds
3: it was good it was good on that recording for sure
1: yeah and it's very, it's, it's so- very
3: soulful very very much in her wheelhouse
1: it's it's weird too though that she has so many vocal problems but is able to pull something that beautiful out consistently
2: yeah every time
1: despite the success of the tour that she was going on which included to to turn out to actually be a very successful run at drury lane which like she she ended up like those original dates were canceled but people were like please and she ended up having a really impressive run there and she actually appeared at some place that we have been which is the greek theater in los angeles oh nice it's a great venue it is a beautiful venue. it's a cold venue though it is a very cold venue, and the parking is crap that's why we didn't park there remember we walked well we parked on the street and then walked yeah. all the way up and it was worth it <laughs> and we didn't have to deal with tandem parking mm-hmm. but the but the greek theater is a beautiful place and uh, she was supporting peter allen for a few months earlier and dusty was worried about her new york dates so by now, she's actually recording the title track for the film Norma Rae, in which Sally Field plays a union organizer, and the song, It Goes Like It Goes, had won an Oscar. Right. She also released another album, Living Without You, which was a nod to Motown, and that's the one that had You Really got a Hold On Me, and a song which had a nod to homophobia in the number Closet Man, and one that was actually written by Carol Bay Sager and Melissa Manchester.
4: Hmm.
1: But again the album was not well received. People kept comparing all of her new tracks to the Dusty in Memphis album, and one reviewer said that Dusty seemed incredibly world-weary on the new tracks. Interesting take. Yeah. The New York dates, even Vicky remembers her sounding pretty rough. We didn't think that she would get through it. she had blown out her vocals at rehearsals at usual, but the audience was behind her. They were trying to will her to be good. Mm. The next day, Dusty went to the doctor and was given the cortisone shot to get her through the two-week session. Most of the night, she made it on stage, got through whatever set, whatever her voice was doing, and somewhat keeping it intact, but uh, she was betraying all of her years in rehab and began to drink Grand Marinier for her throat. Interesting. She was also on antidepressants, and she would talk about having Quaalude sandwiches. So just as a note, Quaaludes were actually taken off the market by the late 1980s, which I didn't realize. I um, knew they were. I just didn't know when. Yeah. I, were they replaced by Klonopin? I don't know. I don't
3: know. Uh, but I don't think that was much better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't but, even uh, think Klonopins are on the market either. I right don't now. think
3: so. Because there are several people I can think of who were who ended up a, a, a terribly addicted to Klonopin. P- p- prominent people. Stevie Nicks being one of them. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not speaking out of turn or anything. I don't know Stevie. I'm not betraying her confidence. She mentioned it in her behind the music. <laughs> was um, about her, or
1: about
2: Fleetwood Mac, because I remember
3: the Fleetwood. It, Mac. It, it, it may have been about Fleetwood Mac, but, um, but Fleetwood Mac one but
2: I, I re- re- No, but I think it might have been Stevie,
3: but she mentioned it. Uh, that in passing and i can think of a couple other people prominent people who ended up hooked on that as well so
2: i believe ld is a very big uh, stevie nicks fan
1: i am a very big stevie nicks fan man she is awesome number one like there was a meme going around where it was like taylor swift will write a song about her boyfriend and sing it and then stevie nicks is such a badass she'll write about how much of a dick her ex-boyfriend was and then make him play guitar on stage while she sings about him
2: <laughs> oh Lindsay. yeah
1: <laughs> like yes Steve and she was on american horror story several times sure. also she is a witch not that i'm a witch but it's awesome that she is like a legitimate she's
3: actually a
4: witch
1: yes, yes she is she is a like actual practice i mean like maybe honorary i don't think she's like a... no i think she's an actual practicing witch like mm. i i genuinely believe she is in that community she's mm. in the mm. rock hall of fame now isn't she she better be yeah i will fight yeah. somebody. <laughs> All right, so with the quaaludes, it was just something else that she was addicted to.
3: And I've never actually heard of anybody using Grand Marnier for their throat. I have heard of people taking, making like toddies with some bourbon in them and stuff like that, Um, which which actually can't help. I I mean, but that's you're talking very little bourbon, lots of honey, lemon, and a little tea. I think I've never I've never heard of anybody drinking Grand Marnier for their throat.
1: Now, just. Forgive me because I know it's going to sound stupid, but like I become a better singer if I have a shot of vodka. And I don't know if it's because it like loosens up my vocal cords or or it just makes me think I sound better.
2: Yeah, it, it might be the the luck potion from Harry Potter. It, it just be. makes you feel and like yeah. And
3: it also probably settles your nerves a little.
2: Yeah, lowers inhibitions,
3: yeah. Yeah, lowers inhibitions, sett- settles your nerves a little. I've heard of people using a very limited amount of alcohol on occasion singers. But, they, but not to the point that they're drunk. Right. Because then you're getting dehydrated, and that's not right. good for your voice and stuff like wow. that.
1: Well, that's why opera singers, to maintain their voice, they don't drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. They, they they, stay away from it altogether. But if I'm doing karaoke, you know, in the past, I would have had drinks. I haven't had a drop. Well,
3: Pavarotti thing. didn't sing karaoke very often at no. all.
1: Yeah, no.
2: but like I was- those few occasions. <laughs> I would like-
1: say. <laughs> could you imagine if Pavarotti Rick rolled us also oh, be also just so you guys know, uh, no, it's not Pavarotti. Who is it? It's, um, the one, Andrea Bocelli is playing at the Hollywood Bowl. Is as he? Well. I feel like we yes. need to go.
2: I feel like we should go because he followed us through Italy. Yeah. No, but can't, can't just picture like
1: he gets up there, he's like, "Sweet Caroline, bum bum, bum. <laughs> It'd Be amazing. And I would pay money for that. So this is actually a really hard story. She was at this gorgeous hotel that overlooks Central Park when she was in New York, and she came out of the bathroom covered in blood. And she said, oh, I did such a crazy thing. I broke a bottle of Scope and look what happened. So they they take care of her. And it wasn't until sometime later, one of her friends went into the bathroom and saw that the heavy enamel sink had been smashed to pieces. She broke the sink? She broke the sink. Now, remember like when we were watching Wolverine and I'm like, how much power does it take to break a, a, a sink? And you're like, probably a lot. It was like, number one, how do you not hear that happen?
2: Especially a sink mate in those
3: days. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. The things were much more durable back then, yeah, for sure.
1: But from what I understand, Dusty, you know, was not a big girl, like, but no, she's
3: she she's a small, she was a relatively small person,
1: yeah. So, like, she just destroys the sink, comes out like covered in blood. Like, I, that's that's <laughs> gotta be too, so yeah. scary. So,
3: there is a you know, when you lose control sometimes. And you have some of the issues that she, I think, had. I, I think things like that can happen. The 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 power and the strength that the, that they can that can be summoned on occasion would probably stun and amaze you.
1: Especially if you're going numb chemically, yeah. you're not feeling the pain. Yes.
2: Yeah. yeah.
3: Right.
1: Moving on from that scary incident on April fourth, nineteen seventy nine, she recorded a guest appearance on the Shirley Bassey show hey! uh, for BBC One. Yeah, she sang I'm Coming Home Again and Save Me, Save Me. Although the latter was actually edited from the show's broadcast when it was shown in the UK. Mm. But you were talking about, we we discovered through something that I was studying with Dusty that we were talking about her not being in, her not being one of the Bond girls, like one of the Bond singers.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. And we discovered something was that she actually was supposed to be one of the Bond singers. And it just wasn't working and it kept falling through and it kept failing. And so it actually went to... Was it Carly Simon? It was Carly Simon. The Nobody does actually, it better. Song actually went to Carly Simon. So that's just the the Bond connection with Shirley there. Uh, on April 8th, 1979, Dusty had a concert at the Apollo in Manchester and it was canceled. Same goes for the concerts in Birmingham and Edinburgh. She was able to present an award to the Bee Gees at the British Rock and Pop Awards for the 1978 season, uh, which were held in the Café Royal London, and that was actually televised. So she actually made a televised appearance along with the Shirley Bassey concert. Again, in April for the concert at the Dome in Brighton, that show was canceled as was her show in Bristol the next night. She was finally able to perform on the 19th and the 21st of April, giving three live concerts at the Theatre Royale. Later that year in August, uh, Dusty announced that she was parting company with various managers and that Kevin Hunter was going to be her new manager. Kevin also managed Natalie Cole. Oh my. So Dusty got some really sad news. Uh, After getting to spend Christmas with him in 1977, her father passed away. As a result, she canceled uh, some of her performances, which is completely understandable. Now, just eight months later, Dusty announced that she had another new manager, Jack Stein. She said that Kevin Hunter, her previous manager, was much too laid back for her. In June of 1980, Dusty once again left another record label and then signed with 20th Century Fox Records in the U.S. So, you know... Another record label. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. She hops a lot. Clearly. Jumping to 1981, she uh, flies to Melbourne, Australia to take part in a car sales promo for Dodson, And she records eight radio interviews and does three TV shows. Because remember, this is past the point of, I think, John Laws. And Dusty is massive in Australia. They love Dusty in Australia. All right, so I'm going to glaze over this part. But at some point dusty gets it into her head that she wants to move to canada please remember when dusty wants something her impulses are real buying houses when going out for
2: groceries right like
1: like, hey i'm gonna buy some milk eggs and a condo (laughs) or oh my this room could hold a bowling alley then all of a sudden you have 10 pins in your living room so uh you know what though i can't fault dusty because i'm just as impulsive as she is like to a fault Mm -hmm.
3: just just with much less money
1: yeah, with my yes. yeah, I can't get a bowling alley in our living room. Yes, so years.
3: such that you can't decide you're going to have a bowling alley in your living room this afternoon,
2: right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I could decide it; it would never get executed, or it would be one of those like things that you can buy at Ross, where oh, you know little, it's like, uh, the yeah. little ones where it's like, or it would bottle.
3: be like ten empty Coke bottles and a frozen turkey.
1: Yep. Ooh, why would, you, Ooh, why would you? Yeah, yeah, I want some turkey now. Is <laughs> Boston Market still open? Oh, I want some Boston Market. All right, anyway. We're not sponsored uh, by Boston Market. <laughs> we does are but if you want to sponsor us, Boston Market. Hey, with Boston Market. I'll be down. Call us up. Yeah. So not only was the trip up to Canada really long and arduous, uh, but just not fun at all for Dusty. And so she ends up moving back. in the summer of 81 so in november of 1981 she was back in los angeles and began to work on the album white heat which by the way for a 1980s album is the perfect name it's about as 80s as it gets it is white heat was the 12th studio album by dusty and the 11th released and it was only released in the u.s and canada more so than her previous two albums it begins again and living without you and the non-album single It Goes Like It Goes, White Heat was a distinct departure from her Los Angeles-produced radio-friendly soft rock sound, being closely identified with the new wave and synth pop of the early 1980s. So she's really taking a departure from her normal sound. Hmm. The album arguably contains the most diverse sections of genres to be collected on any Dusty Springfield album, Wow, ranging from the ballad time and time again orchestrated by james newton howard to the aggressive rock of blind sheep co-written by springfield herself and remember dusty said one thing she doesn't like to write music and the only time she does it is for the money (laughs) so the session for blind sheep was the last designated sessions for 20th century fox in the musicians guild logs that's mm, probably a little bit of foreshadowing because you know again she's gonna hop to some other place in the aftermath of the disco backlash and its ensuing a dramatic drop in record sales worldwide springfield's american label united artist was brought out 20th century fox took on the project but by that time the album was complete and ready for release 20th century had been sold to the u.s arm of polygram oh wow <laughs> like Oh, my God. Again, no commercial success. Reviewing the album in record, Barry Alfonso commented, Springfield's now stepped away from her earlier M.O.R. approach, which if you guys don't know, that's middle of the road Mm -hmm. approach, and headed in a Grace Jones pop-funk direction. The results are uneven, but encouraging nonetheless. He elaborated that Springfield's sensual approach to songs like I Am Curious and I Don't Think We Could Ever Be Friends was perfect while she mishandled ballads such as Losing You by taking a modern approach to them instead of the emotional thrust that was her trademark sound. So this is where we're going to end this week. Uh, We're going to be picking up in 82 and then going all the way to her death in 99 on the next episode.
4: Hmm.
1: So for that, we're going to say goodnight. We'll do our socials real quick. Will, if you could. Sure. As you review
2: the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast catalog, you may look on certain episodes with fondness. You may look back on others and think, huh, I wonder if they added X, Y, and Z. You know what's a great way to support this show? By giving us money. That is one way you can wow. contribute and be part of the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast. Uh TJ, you mentioned earlier that fan engagement is something we are super into. Obviously, there is monetary engagement, but you can also hit us up on the feeds I'm going to present to you right now. If you feel that we deserve a dime or two, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. That's and not with the N, rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter feed is at rock and roll lt, Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT. Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. I am still not saying our website. LT Light like Lawrence Taylor. Correct, yes, <laughs> like Lawrence Taylor, or Lieutenant abbreviated. You or or LaDainian Tomlinson. Or Lodanian <laughs> Tomlinson.
1: How do you how do you uh, abbreviate leader? I'm sorry? Leader, like oh
2: like the measurement? Like a leader of drink. Like BLT. I is don't that, know. Is LT as Possibly. Well? But the it's the second half of a sandwich, which uh, <laughs> second two-thirds of a sandwich are the best part first right. part. So so that,
3: but right, you've left the best part out. Exactly.
2: Cool. So take a BLT and take out what's good. You got that. You can always approach us on email. We love to engage with you there. That is rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Again, that's rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out some other awesome podcasts on the Pantheon Network, a proud Pantheon podcast. That's us here at Rock and Roll Heaven.
1: Yay. All All right. Now, T, would you like to say something to our audience? Bye. (laughs) Gets to the point. And we'll... Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. All right, so... As I say goodnight to you guys, I'm going to leave you with a track off of Dusty's album, White Heat, which is uh, still just a, the best 80s title. I'm sorry. I really I'm is. I'm going to revel in that for like a second. because I feel like it should be a movie with Emilio Estevez. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, Eddie Murphy. It's yes. Eddie, Eddie Murphy and Emilio Estevez in White
2: Heat. We've just created something that should appear on TBS in the middle of the night.
3: And Jim Belushi. <laughs>
1: and Jim, uh, Belushi, Jim yeah. Belushi and a dog or a monkey a okay.
2: monkey
3: how
1: about a? how about an ocelot and I an mean, ocelot I mean if you can get them but boy howdy they're messy and they're mean yeah anyway we're gonna close out with a, a track from White Heat by Dusty Springfield and this song is called Time and Time Again
0: Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer.